Let me, uh, let me start with three great truths. Three great truths for you this morning. God's great pleasure is himself. God's great pleasure is himself. His great treasure, his great joy, his great pleasure is himself. Jesus is God himself. If God's great pleasure is himself, then Jesus takes pleasure in himself. And then this last one, we have access to God through Jesus. We have access to God through Jesus. Do you want to enjoy the greatest joy of the universe? Look to Jesus. Do you want great joy? Look to Jesus. I mean, some of you might remember when the, uh, the ride called the Fury opened up at Carowinds. And it was like the tallest roller coaster, the fastest roller coaster in America. I think it might be just like the fastest roller coaster in Charlotte now at this point. But when it came out, it broke all the records. It's like, are you looking for a thrill? Are you looking for a fast ride? That's where you go. The, the beautiful thing about the joy of God is that it never, go, never gets old. There's never a taller roller coaster. There's never something better. This is the greatest joy in the universe of all time. It is in God himself, and he has given us access to that great joy, that great pleasure through Jesus. And understanding this will help us see into the purpose and beauty of the text today, where John baptizes Jesus. This is the pinnacle moment of John's life. Nothing before this or after this could compare. And it would be the pinnacle of your life too. Can you imagine? I mean, just the, the unbelievable opportunity for Jesus to come to you and ask to be baptized. Imagine the honor of baptizing Jesus. The ministry of John's life wasn't easy. He lived in the wilderness. He confronted the most powerful men of his day. We're going to see next week that that ended up costing him his life. Verse 13 where we're going to start today, actually picks up immediately after John tells these powerful Pharisees and Sadducees that their works and beliefs would lead them straight to hell. That's where we ended last week, and that's where we see there's a price to be paid for rejecting God. If you're here and you're a Christian, you need to hear that. There's a price to be paid for rejecting God. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you need to hear that. There's a price to be paid for rejecting God. But then Jesus comes. What a shift. What a moment. It's the fulfillment. It's the kingdom come. It's heaven on earth. Look at verse 13 with me. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? In verses 13 and 14, John seems truly shocked in these verses. This is, this is a picture of the king submitting to the servant. That's what's happening here. John didn't think about his status or his fame. He thought about the worthiness of Jesus. If John had been thinking about his status and his fame and all the good things he had done, he'd have been like, yeah, Jesus, let's get, let's get baptized. Where are the cameras? Let's make sure everyone knows that I'm baptizing Jesus. This will look good in the newspapers. 
But verse 13, 14 shows something different about John. Not John thinking about his fame. He thinks about the fame of Christ. Verse 14 shows us John's humility. It's really the first thing we see here in response to Jesus that John shows us in his baptism of Jesus is humility. You can imagine how John might have delivered this line in verse 14. It's like, hey, Jesus, I need to be baptized by, by you. Like, not in front of everybody. You didn't want to correct Jesus in front of everybody. You don't know how he delivered this line. But he's saying, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And you come, you come to me? Jesus, you're too great for me to baptize. You're too wonderful, too powerful, too perfect, too pure. You're coming to me? As John proclaimed the coming of Christ, how did he describe him? I mean, do you remember? Look at from another gospel, Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 7. This is what he said. You, you might remember this line. It's a famous line that John the Baptist delivered. If you're not, if you haven't been familiar with the New Testament, here's a good one from John the Baptist talking about the worth of Jesus. Mark 1, 7, he says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. This is how John thinks of Jesus. One who is so much greater than me. Not just a little bit better. Not just a little bit greater. So much better. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm not worthy to untie your dirty sandals. How could I be worthy to baptize you? John recognized that Jesus needed nothing from him. Jesus, you don't, you don't need this, right? In fact, Jesus didn't need John. He didn't, he didn't need John, but he did provide John with this privilege. Even this is evidence of how God loves people. This is a pattern. This is what God does. He, he doesn't need people, but he enjoys providing people with the privilege of participating in his work. If God needed people, we would wonder, does God love us or does he just use us? If God needed people, we would rightfully wonder, is he God at all? And we would be correct in saying if he needed us, he wouldn't be God at all. But here, God isn't like that. In his presence, even his asking for something is actually offering something. He loved John. Therefore, he asked John to participate in this monumental moment. And John's response to this was humility. He felt this love of Christ. He saw the greatness of God and his response was humility and not an empty humility. It wasn't a false humility. He wasn't putting on airs. It was genuine. It was humility based on his deep respect and fear of God, which is where our humility should be rooted in our deep respect and fear of God. Because John knew who God is. He responded to his presence in humility because he knew who God is. How did John respond to the privilege and presence of Jesus? Well, here's a question. How do we respond to the presence of Christ? How do we respond to the honor Jesus gives us? 
Like John, it should start in humility. And like John, it should also lead us to obedience. This is what happens in verse 15. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. When John baptized Jesus, he he demonstrates, he sets the example for us for obedience. He consented. This is the beauty of obedience for those who follow Jesus. Our obedience begins to remove us from the picture. Isn't that an interesting concept of obedience? This thing that God calls us to, this thing that we should strive for as Christians, obedience begins to remove us from the picture. The more obedient we are, the more the world sees Jesus. If you've played sports before, you've, heard, you've probably even heard an umpire say that one of their goals is to be non-existent. Like, the less you see an umpire or referee, the better their job is, the better they've done their job. They don't want to be the center of attention. I love our AV team here. I've heard, I think I've heard Jake say in the back before that if you don't notice that there's an AV team, then they've done their job. They, they just want to be behind the scenes doing it where you don't even notice them. I love that heart. And by the way, I'm really grateful for our AV team. <laughs> our AV team. You might notice that there's only one screen up this morning. That's because when we came in this week, there was an electrical hit on this building. And so all of our stuff this morning was like totally not right. And so our AV team was like in full speed mode, trying to get everything up and running and working. And they did a really great job. And this isn't their fault. I think this is just part of being in a building that's not ours and finding things broken on Sunday mornings sometimes. (laughs) sometimes. Uh, But I'm really grateful for our AV team. Thank you guys. But they want to be in the background. And that's true for us as we follow Christ. We should want to be in the background. Can we really say that about our lives, that I don't need it to be Mark Navy front and center. I don't need people to know how great Mark is. I don't need heaps and heaps of praise because what I really desire is for Jesus to have all the praise. This is strange in the world. The better you are at basketball, the more you're seen. The better you are at the job, at your job, the more likely you are to get noticed for a promotion. The better your grades are in class, the better chance you'll be for, uh, to be considered for honors. But in the kingdom of God, the better we follow Jesus, the less we get noticed. The better we follow Jesus, the more Jesus gets noticed. In John's obedience, he pointed the spotlight to Jesus. But what was John obedient to do? What was his obedience here? What, what was he saying yes to? He was saying yes to baptizing Jesus. He consented. I think consented is an interesting word here. Uh, obedience is always at least consent. Yes, God, I will do it. It's always healthy for consent to be done with a joyful attitude. Yes, God, we will do it, and we will do it with joy. Um, a lot of our staff jokes that if I were to write a book, it would be called Joyful Obedience because I say jo- Joyful Obedience a lot. But this is really what we, we desire in Christ is that we would joyfully obey, that it wouldn't be hard work for us to obey, that we wouldn't begrudge God for giving us instructions, but that we would love to obey him. We would love for the spotlight to be on him. 
So John was obedient to baptize Jesus. And we can admit that on the surface, someone baptizing Jesus seems strange. Why? Like, Jesus, why would, why would Jesus be baptized? After all, why was John baptizing people at all? What was the point of John's baptism? I mean, remember Matthew 3, 2? Matthew, what was, he, I mean, what was John preaching? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Well, who needs to repent? Who, who is the call to repent given to? Not to the perfect, sinless Savior of the world. What does he have to repent from? The call to repent is given to sinners. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. I'm saying I'm turning to something. And John's saying, whoa, Jesus, I'm not worthy to baptize you. What do you have to repent of? Jesus had nothing to repent for. We know he was perfect, that he was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5 says this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Do you see that? Our Savior knew no sin. He was sinless. He is the perfect, perfect Savior, completely holy. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Because Jesus was perfectly righteous, we are able to inherit his righteousness. Jesus is sinless. So what does he have to repent for? Jesus was completely blameless, completely perfect and pure. It was the only way he could save us. The sacrifice to atone for our sins needed to be without sin. So if Jesus had sin, his death would have been just like any of ours. Jesus was exactly perfect in every way. But his baptism associated him with sinners. His baptism wasn't a repentance for his sin, but it was an association with those who do sin. It identified him with us. Why would Jesus submit to baptism? Because he's making it clear to the world that he is human. That he is one of us. That he came in human form. That he made himself low to save his creation. He chooses to identify and associate with us, which is really the message of baptism, isn't it? What do we do in baptism? What do we do when we're baptized? What do we do when, when we're baptized Christians? We're identifying and associating with Jesus. We're saying, yes, you can find me in Christ. In baptism, we say we are no longer our own, but we hide ourselves in Jesus. We are hidden in, hidden in Christ. It's really the message of our baptism. So it's appropriate that Jesus, in his baptism, would associate with us, would identify with us. So Jesus identifies with us, and Jesus sets the example for us. He comes and is baptized so he would pave the way for us. He will command believers to be baptized, right? At, in the, at the end of Jesus' ministry, he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them. He, it's a command for us to follow in obedience, to be baptized. So he, he sets the path. Jesus is a good leader. He wouldn't ask us to do anything he hasn't done himself, even getting dunked in water. 
Jesus' baptism was fitting to fulfill all righteousness, as he says here. That's his, that's his convincing phrase to John. What convinces John to consent? What brings about John's obedience? That it's, fulfilling, it's fitting to fulfill all righteousness. And that's true because Jesus needed to identify with those he would make righteous by his blood. It had to happen. In order for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, he needed, to, he needed to announce to the world that he was there for them, not for the healthy, but for the sick. He came to save sinners. He identified with those he would make righteous by his own blood. And it was fitting to fulfill all righteousness because he modeled the obedience he demands of the righteous. Jesus modeled exactly the obedience that he calls us to. It's also the beginning of his ministry. He says, John, let's do this. Let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. And from here, I'll begin my ministry. His baptism acted as a diving board, or better, it acted as an announcement, a proclamation, maybe, of sorts. What was John the Baptist doing? He was preparing the way. He was saying, hey, Jesus is here. And part of the way he did that was by baptizing Jesus, saying, hey, he's here. His ministry is beginning. World, look out. The Savior has come. The kingdom has come. And yes, he did it with his voice and he did it with his actions. Here it is. Symbolically, the Savior is here. Before this moment, Jesus lived in relative obscurity. But now he would go public with his life's purpose. Now he begins to preach and do miracles. And John baptizing Jesus would have been much like a trumpet as royalty entered the court. Here he is. It was the pomp and circumstance of the arrival of the Savior of the world. Keep reading with me in verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized... Immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Do you remember what happens when we're obedient? We fall out of the picture. Jesus gets the spotlight. That's what happens in verse 16 and 17. We can't tell John's story without taking John out of the story. For us to really tell John's story well, he kind of has to exit, and it all becomes about Jesus. And that's what happens here in verses 16 and 17. There's no more John. We don't care about John anymore. We care about the beautiful center of our line of sight. We care about our great treasure. I wonder if we can say that about ourselves. Can we tell our story well if we take ourselves out of it? I hope that it would be said of your life that John wasn't the most important part of his life. Steve wasn't the most important part of his life. Ryan wasn't the most important part of his life. Jessica wasn't the most important part of her life. But Jesus was the most important part of their lives. That's true of John. We have to believe that John's response here was just wonder and awe. We don't know for sure, but 
we kind of know for sure. (laughs) Can you imagine standing with Jesus in the water as this scene unfolds? Just awestruck. All three persons of the Trinity in one moment before their eyes and ears, the heavens opened and the spirit descended like a dove. It's beautiful. What a moment. In all of human history, what a moment. And the Spirit descending is intriguing and interesting in itself. How does the Holy Spirit represent himself visually? Apparently something like a dove. But more interesting than that is what the Holy Spirit does. And look at the verse. Look, what does God's word say there in verse 16? He descended like a dove and coming to rest on him. He comes to rest on Jesus. Jesus' ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. But you might ask, isn't Jesus God? Why did he need the Holy Spirit to empower his ministry? Did he not empower himself? Well, yes, this is true. Jesus is equal with the Holy Spirit and one in spirit with the Holy Spirit. But we know this from Philippians 2. If you have your Bibles, you can even flip over there with me. Philippians chapter 2. Verses 5 and 7. This is such an essential verse for understanding this moment. Philippians 2, verses 5 and 7. Have this mind among yourselves. Jesus is calling the church to humility. Paul is calling the church to humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus identified with us. He associated with us. He came and allowed the Holy Spirit to empower his ministry, even as he is born in the likeness of men. How is your ministry empowered, Christian? (laughs) There's not some divine spark that lights up inside of you. You're, You're not Optimus Prime. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. Your ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I associate with you even in that. Jesus, who is completely God, completely man, he made himself dependent on the Holy Spirit. He said, yes, and power. Let me show you this in your Bible. Turn with me again to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 is an example of this. We're staying not too far away from 2 Corinthians, Hebrews chapter 9, just a few, few more pages over. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. Here we see this beautiful example of what it will take for us to be saved. Here in Hebrews 9, verse 13, it says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, Check this out in verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In days of old, you were were purified temporarily with these temporary sacrifices, but now you have this perfect sacrifice, the one who can truly save you from your sin for good forever. And how does that happen? Through the eternal spirit. Jesus saves you by his blood through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. His ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus came to seek and save the lost. That was the purpose of his coming. And he did that through the Holy Spirit. We even see that in Matthew 12. As Jesus was being confronted and and the Pharisees were saying, look, all your miracles, all, all the things you're doing, we think that's from Beelzebub. We think that's from Satan. It's through his power. And what did Jesus respond? How did he say to them? He said, you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit, he was setting the example for you and me. He was setting the example of obedience for you and me. Church, we need to rely fully on the Holy Spirit to empower us for ministry in Christ. This may be the greatest challenge for the church in America. I don't know, is it fair for me to make a grand statement like that? We have so many other things that we can rely on that will create false pictures of spiritual maturity and church growth other than the Holy Spirit. And we could have two working projectors and people would be like, look, they got it all together. But isn't there so much performance that we associate with what it means to be healthy as a church and as a Christian? And what should we associate with health as a church and as a Christian? Is it not the extent to which we rely on the Holy Spirit? There's ways we can measure this doesn't have to be mysterious. Are we doing this or are we not doing this? We can measure how we rely on the Holy Spirit. Think about this, maybe as a primary way we can measure this. What is the time and energy and fury of your prayer life like? Is our prayer life inconsequential? Something we do because we know we're supposed to. Because we've heard a message on it. Do we pray because we trust that the God of the universe hears us and answers us and cares about us and listens to us and has a heart for us? And gives us his Holy Spirit who dwells in us and changes our mind to desire what he desires so that when we pray, we're not just praying for the things that we want, but we're praying for the things of God. And we're saying, God, change me and change the world. And we're saying, God, we know that even by our fancy techniques, we can't do these things. It's only by the Spirit that we can see lost people saved. Do we pray because we know the world is ending? The world is ending for someone today. Are we praying because we sense the urgency that this life is like a vapor? Jesus loved the Holy Spirit, loves the Holy Spirit. They have perfect fellowship together. He is the great delight and joy 
They are the great delight and joy of themselves. Do we take great delight and joy in our relationship with God? Do our prayer lives reflect that? In the same moment that the Spirit descended, the Father spoke. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The Father speaks of Jesus as he told the prophets he would. Isaiah told us that the Father would feel this way about Jesus. Isaiah was a prophet. If you flip back in your Old Testament, you can find this really long book titled Isaiah. He was a prophet to the Jews in the Old Testament. And this is what he said in Isaiah 42. This is 42 verse 1. Behold my servant, who there is Jesus, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Here at the beginning of his ministry, the father calls his servant his son. Whom Isaiah had just said, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, the servant is the son of God. It's a clear indication that this is the Messiah who has been long awaited. He's not just some other prophet. He's not just some other servant who's coming along. It is Jesus, the Son of God, the Beloved. He's one with God. Jesus is exactly who God is because he is God. He is the exact nature and imprint of God. And the Father delights in him. The Father delights in him because he is exactly who God is. He's perfect and worthy and obedient to himself, obedient to the will of the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Here at this moment of Trinitarian beauty, we get to peek at the supremacy of God in his nature and his delight. Who is God? He is Father and Spirit and Son. And what is his delight? His delight is himself. Praise God that he lets us glimpse into his wonder and majesty. What do we rest our minds on during the day? I'm thankful for Walter's call to worship this morning. What do we rest our minds on during the day? There's such an endless feed of worthless information that we get to set our minds on. But what a beautiful truth that we could never tire of. Who is God? He has exactly explained it. And we can meditate on it day and night and never grow old. Even as I preach on the nature of God as a trinity, as the trinity, I worry because I think I don't understand it perfectly. And I don't want to be preaching heresy here. What amount of time can I give to studying the nature of God that would be wasted? Where I would know too much. Where I'd be too certain and sure of who God is. I cannot give myself enough time looking into the beauty of Jesus. But yet, it's always so hard to find the time. Yet, I always find myself giving my precious time to think and meditate to lesser things. But what do we call to set our minds to? Heavenly things. 
Where are we told to store our treasure? Not here, not in this temporary time, but in heaven. What greater treasure do we have than the thoughts of our hearts and the time that we spend during our day? Man, may we store the treasure of our time in heaven, not just the treasure of our dollars. When we get to look at the nature of God and the delight of God, it is a blessing for us. He delights in himself. And what did God do with his delight? What did God do with his great delight? He didn't put it in a museum somewhere. He shares it with the world. He shared his great delight with us. That's the main idea. That's what we're talking about today. That's it. John's baptism. What does it speak to? What does it prove to us? It proves that God shares his pleasure with us. When we talk about fellowship with God, when we talk about being filled with all the fullness of God, it's experiencing how God shares his pleasure with us, how he shares his delight with us. It's the reason that we think at all about being a Christ-centered community driven by the joy of the gospel. God shared himself with us. What is the joy of the gospel? It is Jesus himself. We're driven by Jesus himself, a joy in Christ to make disciples, to be obedient, to be humble, knowing it's not about us. God shares himself with us. So then the question comes to you. And I want you to hear that this is a question the Bible asks of you. I'm saying it to you right now, but this is a biblical question for you. What will you do with the generosity of God? Will you repent and turn to him? Or will you reject his kindness? God has been so kind to you. God has been so good to us that he would send one who would identify and associate with us even in the deep, darkest, secret sins that we have. He would still say to us, I love you and I will pay the price for that. A great, deep kindness. Kindness feels too short of a word. Don't you feel confined by language sometime? Like, I need something greater. God has shown that to us. I praise God for those who sit here today and say, I'll give my life to that. That's, That's what we declare as Christians, right? That we give our lives to Christ. That we trust in him. That we believe he is who he says he is. I pray that is true for you, Christian. I can't tease the truth out of you. You you know the truth in your heart. Do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? And if you believe, he'll change your heart to a heart of repentance, a heart of surrender. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I think the beauty of who God is and the beauty of his word speaks for itself. I hope that your heart is stirring in you, if you're not a Christian, to know this 
unbelievable truth. To know who God is and to enjoy him forever. That you might that you might repent and turn to him, that you might receive his kindness. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to continue to sing together. And as, as we sing, I'm going to be in the back, and I'd love to talk with you if you've got questions about following Jesus, about receiving his kindness. I'd love to talk with you about it. So I want to call you to courage. If you're a Christian, don't hear these words and sit idly by. I was meeting with a couple guys before our service this morning, and we were talking about being doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. We said there's really, the word doesn't give you an option. If you hear the word of God, you will either reject it or you will obey it. You You can't choose a middle ground on it. And obedience looks like action. When we follow and obey Christ, it'll look like action. So let's take action, Christian. Let's take, let's take action. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you want to become one, pray to God right now. You don't, you don't need me. God's word is clear. Talk to him now. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. I consider, I think about the way you love yourself, the way the Father loves the Son, the way the Spirit loves the Son, the way the Son loves the Spirit, the way the Son loves the Father, the way the Father loves the Spirit. God, it's too great. I know that I know that you've revealed enough to me in your word that it's enough. And I know even in my own life that I haven't come to an end of enjoying and knowing you. And I'm thankful for the testimony of the saints through the ages who have never grown tired of looking into the beauty of who you are. That we can declare your beauty and your worth. We know we're going to declare it for eternity. I thank you for coming for us while we were still sinners, for associating with us, dying for our sins and rising again. And we thank you that you've, you've done everything needed for us to be saved. And we praise you that you're coming again soon to claim everything is yours. We praise you for this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.